Welcome to the DFS pregame show here on Roto Grinders. I'm Jordan Cooper, aka Blender Red, Blender HD. If you want to follow me there on Twitter, and it's Mondays, so you know what we do on Mondays. It's Mondays with McCool. We bring in James McCool from Pay Dirt DFS, Pay Dirt underscore DFS on Twitter, the co author with me with the theory of daily fantasy sports. It's a 15 hour audio DFS masterclass that you can find at theoryofdfs.com. I see you guys in the YouTube chat. Feel free to post questions. We'll be talking about stuff for about an hour. Strategy-wise, I got, I got stuff planned. Uh, t- we'll, we'll be talking about game theory today. Uh, but I see you guys. Give me the, the thumbs up. Give me the thummy thumbs. Thummy thumbs, thummy downs, thummy ups, thummy whatever, sideways, if you want. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the notification bell. Hit everything. Hit everything on the screen if you want. I see you guys. Uh, Jerome Lewis, Daniel Hutchins, Quinn Williams, Real Life Pitcher, Card Fan, Superman, 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 Brett Booth, Alex Hooper, uh, Hog Lawrence in the chat who uh, took down, uh, a, I think it was a three-way, three-way or maybe four-way split of, uh, I think it was three-way, of the, the MMA, the big MMA contest on Saturday, 56,000, I believe, or something. I think it was a three-way tie up there. I saw saw him up there. I was I was like an eighth or so. I had a solo lineup in like eighth. I profited. I it's it's weird, James, for me in 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 stuff like MMA. I put 124 entries into that contest, $18, 22 and change, whatever. And I didn't have the winner. I didn't even have like a solo like fifth or sixth. But I still pro- I still profited like eighty percent on the co- like twenty two hundred into thirty nine hundred made eight hundred dollars overall on the day because I didn't uh, uh, cash my five fifty five and my one fifty uh, three max uh, entries. But uh, it's 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 not that's considered a good day. Like if if you're if you're nearly max entering a contest and you could show any profit without coming in like the first like you know three way tie to first or anything. Uh, that means I was probably on the right track. Yeah, I mean, you probably had like a pretty concentrated core. You probably didn't have too many lineups that didn't cash. I mean, even placing eighth, like eighth in that contest is what, like 2,000 bucks? I think it was 1,000. 1,000? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it means 1,000 bucks there. You had to have cashed, not, I don't know, out of 100, you said 120 lineups, probably cashed something like 70? No, I think I, I cashed 30. But they all were high. Oh, okay, okay. So, so like, I cash, I cashed up, but I can't, you know, one for 150, one for, you know, it, it, some contrarian stuff happened on. I mean, like the top two owned fighters essentially busted. I mean, one right. completely busted, and one just didn't put up a score that was even relevant. Like there was, he was, he was like out of 12 fighters, he was like the second lowest winning fighter. Yeah, and he was like 20, 40 uh, percent owned, and I didn't have, I barely had him. Yeah. So like that pushed me up a lot. No, I was surprised also after when, when the main event was over, I'm like, okay, this is what's going to kill me. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. That didn't, that really didn't take away that much profit at all. It's like, that's okay, nice. that's because I didn't have much of the main event either. And then the winner of the main event barely scored, you know, barely scored more than the other guy. I mean, that, that was my approach on that, on that slate. And let me, let me uh, minimize this before we get to the marbles, which will be, that's going to be the main part of our discussion. Uh, not to go over like the actual like MMA slate on Saturday, but I, I like using MMA uh, or even showdown for NFL as, you know, it's the simplest contests that are very, very binary 
like results. It's like the two fighters, one guy wins, one guy loses, one woman, one man, one whatever. Uh, that you don't, there's not the correlation is just negative correlation. Like, don't play right. two fighters from the same whatever. That's unlike that's very unlikely that a losing fighter is going to be in the optimal lineup. But I like showing the differences, like, because you're the lineups that you're playing are very are much easier to determine your 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 total leverage of the lineup because it's you don't have to worry about correlate in, 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 in MLB. Well, is the benefit of this having a slightly higher owned lineup because you add the correlation? Or the pitcher versus the other, like there are other variables in there that you could play a high, a higher own lineup, and that actually is a is a is a better lineup than a lower own lineup, even though the lower own lineup is just less owned. Yeah. Uh, but what I do, I, I think a very very uh, important exercise after the slate, and what I typically show on this show every morning with results DB, is you're looking through. Uh, and assessing your own play by by the information gap, not by any, not by the results. The information gap meaning uh, the ownership is the primary thing that you're projecting that you may not be getting accurate. Now, obviously, projections you could backtest over a long period of time, and if you have some automated way of doing ownership projections, you do the same thing. But if you're weighing ownership on a slate to slate basis and you're trying to exploit the field. No, predicting what the field's going to do is very important. So what I, I added after last week is when, when the slate locks, I put in the actual ownership and it just calculates like all, all of my, my rating, my, my Jordan rating or whatever is, is a formula based on all of these, these figures, but it's based on the average ownership of three different ownership sources. Mm -hmm. But now I put in the average ownership, the, the actual ownership, and go, well, if I had had I known that this was the number, what would have the rating actually have been? Now it's not gonna, it shouldn't change that dramatically. Someone that that is projected to be 35% owned is not gonna end up being 10% owned. That's unlikely. But it's gonna shift things enough where I could look and go, had I known this, I would have played more. Had I known that, I would have played less. So looking through this, I could see that like. The difference between here so i see like austin hubbard we had average ownership as 20 percent. he came in 12 he was the lowest owned fighter on the slate and like his rating here was 0.86 so i like i didn't have that i had like 12 percent of them mm -hmm. my 124 but had i known that it his rating would have been so high like i would have probably had him in like 35 percent of my lineups yeah now it wouldn't have worked out but i mean look i had tons of trevin jones who's still rated 30% owned, uh, average ownership was 31. Now he failed, he lost. So I'm not going by like one wins and losses. Luis Saldana lost, but his rating actually got better. He was projected 21%, he came in at 18. So instead of having 32% of him, I should have had 38% of him and, and would have killed more liners, right? So right. I mean, we're not necessarily going by the results. And there, there are certain fighters that I would have had even less of. Like I take a look at Pichel, like I may have had, like, I think I had 12% of him when I should have had like five to none. Like I never have 0%. I always like, like my floor is like 5%. So these red guys, I only had 5% of Madsen, uh, Gastelum, uh, Royville, but Pichel made enough that he got into like 12% of my lineups. But had I known 
he was going to be 33 instead of he was projected average owned 21%. Like I would have played less of it. And he, I mean, he busted. So do you, uh, James, do you do any similar type of process where you look at, especially if you're like max, if you're, you're you know, you're playing the mini max or something, you're playing the 20 max when you're playing a whole bunch of lineups where you look at the, you go, Oh, I think there's going to be leverage here, especially in baseball. This pitcher is going to be X percent is going to be 32% owned. And I'm going to play the 3% three man stack against them. And then he comes in at like 14% owned and go, Oh, I, I didn't get as much leverage as I thought I was going to get there. Had I known I wouldn't have played that type of stack. Do you do any type of process like that? Yeah, of course. Um, I, I look at it a lot when it comes to the bats, not necessarily the pitchers. Um, I think that pitcher ownership, especially in MLB at this point, it gets really, really concentrated. Um, so when you're looking at, well, I thought that DeGrom was going to be, well, DeGrom's a bad example. He's always 7%. But um, I thought that Adam Wainwright or something like that last night should have been like 38% owned or something. He came in like 50% owned. Um, things like that. It's more contextual for me for pitchers at this point because you have four to six pitchers that have any ownership period um, considering like 20% or more ownership, 15% or more. And then you have a whole bunch of guys that just like, they don't have any ownership. So most of the time for, for pitchers, I'm trying to look and see um, who is the highest owned, who's the second highest owned, who, like who are the top three owned um, and then try to determine off that. But with bats, uh, I do look back and I say, well, I had the Boston Red Sox projected for 130% aggregate ownership, but they came in at 175% aggregate ownership. And it's like, I had 20% of my stacks were Boston Red Sox stacks because I still thought they were appropriately valued. But at 175% aggregate ownership, I should have had like 5% or I should have had like 8% or something like that. Cause it's so much higher than where I actually need to be. And um, right, like yesterday, yesterday, James, like the on that slate, the the, the main slate, yesterday yeah. on Sunday, like the J, uh, the Blue Jays were projected to be the highest owned team. Yeah, and they came in even higher than that. Yeah, so I had the Blue Jays at on on DraftKings, I had them at one hundred and four percent aggregate ownership, and then on FanDuel, I had them at one hundred and fifty, and they were. I mean, like add 50% to both of those, right? Like they, they were really, really high yesterday. But that being said, on DraftKings at 104% aggregate ownership, they had a 14% leverage score. They were negative 32 on FanDuel. Like they were a straight up fade on FanDuel, but they were still a good play on DraftKings. They had a 43% chance to have eight or more runs in that spot. So they were still a good spot. But if you take them up that 50%, like all of a sudden now, yeah, they still are projected really, really well, but do I really want to have that much ownership to a team that's that heavily negative leverage? I guess I can, if I want to fade my best pitcher projections, like Adam Wainwright projected to be the highest owned DK pitcher, but he was also projected to be the highest scoring by seven points in my model. So do I fade him to get the Blue Jays? If I know they're going to be 160% aggregate, I don't know. Um, Thing, things like that it's really hard in baseball especially because uh in in mma right like you have one fighter right it's just like the dude against the other dude or the dudette against the other dudette right you're and, not you're not considering like when you say aggregate on on a baseball team like there are ways to make blue jay stacks that aren't just taking like if you would have played 
like Laura Guriel or something like you, you, you and, and Smith, the bottom of the lineup, yeah, you don't play Vlad in your stack. Like there's, there's a way like the aggregate is just kind of like the, like just the, or the average you can even take. Yeah. It's just a guideline. There are still ways to play chalk teams in a way that's not as owned by playing the, the, the worst hitters. Right. But that, that doesn't, that, that number doesn't take that into account. And then, but, and also doing that, you murder your median projections. Like, I mean, who was it? It was uh, their catcher, Elhund or Kirk. Like, you can take Kirk and, and like, Guriel and, I don't know, I did Bo Bichette or something like that. Whoever is, like, that six, seven, eight, nine hitters, you can do that. But then you're going to miss out on the projection of Vlad Guerrero that's at, like, 14. You're going to miss out on Marcus Simeon, who's sitting there at, like, 13. You're giving up 14, 15 points in median projection. And then at that point, like, you might as well just play the Reds who project better than what you just put together as a Blue Jays stack, but are infinitely less owned. So that's, that's where it gets harder is you are looking at, you can't just look at the aggregate and say, oh, well, I can't play the Blue Jays because they're going to be 50, 150% aggregate. Um, in the same way that you can look at, well, I'm not going to play, uh, who was it, Pischel yesterday was, yeah, was one of the worst rated. Yeah, yeah. It, you can't Pischel, just look at it and Pischel. say- Feel free. I- it's not like I know the fighters that well either. So no, like, yeah, I don't, I don't know any of them. Um, but you can't you can't just look at it and say that it's that simple. I mean, the combinatorics of it are are magnitudes higher of of difficulty in terms of actually determining the leverage that you're putting together on uh, on baseball, which is why a lot of the time it gets to be like contextual. I mean, when you and I talk a lot in theory DFS about the intuitive model that we have in our heads. It comes down to eventually after you've played so many slates of MLB and after you've played so many slates of these correlation-based sports, you kind of look at it and you say, all right, well, contextually, intuitively, I know that Adam Wainwright uh, with Stephen Matz and the Blue Jays is going to be a really popular sack. So, like, I'm probably going to avoid that. I know that Adam Wainwright, Stephen Matz, and X pitcher three are going to be, like, the top three owned pitchers. So, I should probably look to not combine them with really high owned players. Like you can do it kind of, you don't have to be super mathematically based. I mean, this sheet, which by the way, Jordan, beautiful, beautiful Excel sheet. This is, this looks very clean. I'm proud of you. Other, other, it looks very clean other than the fact that it's all manually entered. <laughs> right. Other, not all. I mean, obviously just like the win odds, like I have the formulas set up to convert stuff to whatever, but I'm, I'm manually going to Rotogrinders grinders projections and putting in the, 28 percent 33 30 38 but oh. they don't change that i mean if i update that once a day it's not gonna right right but the odds and every i could probably i could i i've tried to scrape from from best fight odds but i just i don't know i can't do it right, right. to get to get it here i don't know i'll set that up for you anyway uh point is like you can um like you can take this kind of stuff and it's just like when you put together MLB lineups, there is a way to do it super mathematically. And then if you if you're playing like MME, I think if you have 150 lineups, you have to have that like mathematical approach. I do think that you need to be able to understand that there are certain ways that you can go about getting the Blue Jays with Adam Wainwright with Steven Matz while also still developing leverage with it. But if you only have like five or less lineups, I don't think you need to be super mathematically based. You and I have talked at length about MLB being one of those sports where you really don't need projections. You really don't need a lot of like the hard tools that are built into this, this industry to find uh, relative success in MLB because so much of it is like 
there there are those three parts of leverage where there's the SP1, SP2, and then your main stack. And so long as you are like seeding one or two of those in large scale GPPs, it, you can build mostly however you feel like building. Right. And the reason like people look at this MMA sheet as if it's a model, but it's not. This is a way for me to convert the odds versus this is this is an we'll get into exploiting versus balanced in a second this is my cheat sheet on how to exploit the field so for instance while gastelum and royval and madsen are very lowly rated because they're way over owned for their likelihood of putting up 100 plus points i could still make lineups with them that equal like six fighters if the if i make the average one that means a lineup that's that has a total rating of six is like I would consider to be a neutral zero EV lineup, right? Sure. That's what I would based on based on my methodology. So anything over six is positive expected value. Can I make lineups even with Gastelum at 0.59? Can I get like if he's 0.59, that means I need 5.41 from five different fighters in order to get me up to six. Well, that means most likely in order to do that, I'm probably going to end up with William Knight in that lineup because he is the highest one. I'm probably end up with Brian Kelleher and Trevin Jones in that lineup, possibly Louis Salda. I'll have to use some of the higher leverage fighters in order to get up to that six in a gasoline lineup in order to make it pro profitable. How many of those combinations exist? Maybe not that many. Maybe if I said, if I told a lineup HQ, give me 20 gasoline lineups and have the minimum be six, it will, it will just, it will, you know, fart at me and say, nope, I can only give you 14. And you go, no, no, I want 20. And they'll say, nope, four. like, unless you don't mind going under six, it's not going to be able to give me that. But I could still make lineups that have those, those fighters in it. And I could also make lineups that don't have like William Knight in it at 1.32 and go, can I make a lineup that 6.4 total that doesn't have William Knight? Well, yeah, there, there is a combination that I could, because I'm, I'm most likely going to have Piarte, who's down here as an underdog 1.04, probably Nunez at 1.05 down here. It's probably going to have those fighters in it because that's the only way the salary works out that way. So this isn't, this isn't predictive. There's no, pre that's why to call it a model is, is it's, it's, it's not a model. It has nothing to do with modeling the, the outcomes of fights. It's just, it's a way for me to build lineups that have enough leverage to win, a, to win a contest and also most likely not to be duplicated as much because they're less owned. Uh, when, James, in our, in our course, in, in theoryofdfs.com, uh, our approach... And our approach when doing this show and my methodology, just my strategy in general is based around exploiting what other people do. So we we talk in terms of, of, of like a bit picture is going to be over-owned, uh, play less of them, right? And, and play significantly less of them that, that you would have because of their ownership. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is you're, you're building lineups, you're building exposures, based on how the field is inefficient. But what we don't talk about much, we do mention it in the course. And if you, if you want to go to the, the Theory of DFS podcast, uh, the one that I do on Tuesdays, that's free. You can find it on iTunes. Uh, 
the episode that I just did with Nerdy Tanner, Daniel Hutchins in, in the chat, to me, I think is the best episode I've done. It's 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 long. It's over three hours. Uh, but and of course, uh, Daniel talks a lot about his, you know, he, he does a, like AI style, you know, programming stuff that maybe the lay person and I would say 99.9% of people are not going to be able to do. But the concepts that we talk about in that episode is exactly what what all of this is. The difference is, is that what Nerdy Tenor is doing is fine. Like I, I talk about efficient ownership. Like that's how I view it in terms of how owned should, based on these projections, based on the range of outcomes, based on how they fit into lineups, how owned should this player be? How owned should this lineup be in general? So like just to compare it to MMA, you go, well, based on my thing here, like he's going to be 28% owned and he's under owned. But let's say I move, I move that. Let's say I move that to 38, 48, just to get the average down. 58, 57, 56. Like let's say I get it closer to one. Like they are one. So what I'm saying is based on my based on the odds that I have here, if his average ownership was 37%, that would be efficient. Right? So because I, I have it all set. So if it's one. That's like, that's supposed to be like the efficient level. So that's what, that, so I, that's how I, this is not a non, this is a non-scientific method of doing so. This is not the way you did. This is a cheat sheet version, hack way to do it. But what I'm essentially saying when I put, when I make his rating uh, 1.32, I'm basically saying his efficient ownership is 37%. That's what, that's what I'm, and how much lower owned than his efficient ownership is he? And the lower owned he is from that ownership, the more I want to play. Okay. So if his efficient ownership was 37% and I played 37% of him and he came in at 37%, James, do I, what's, what ends up happening? Well, I mean, he is now appropriately owned. And now the lineup that you built with him is going to be over owned. Well, it, no. If I was if I was rating it at one point three two, I'm saying let's say it was I put him at I put him at efficient ownership. Mm-hmm. So let's say I was I was playing a thirty seven percent owned fighter at thirty seven percent exposure in lineups that basically in thirty set like it's in my lineup equals six now of my like basically yeah. So what what ends up happening if I do that? If if the my lineup. If my lineup rating equals six, and then after looking at actual ownership, it's six, like the lineup is essentially neutral. Yeah. You just essentially has, it has zero EV. Yeah. Okay. So if I, if you play efficient players at efficient ownership, uh, what are you essentially doing is trading rake at that point, right? right? So if your lineup is, as owned, if you're playing it in the frequency that you're playing it, it would be equal. But th- the thing is, in, in DFS, James, uh, the field isn't efficient. Right. Right? So what Daniel talks about on that podcast is what it's, it's a balance strategy, very similar to how you would play poker. 
If you play a balanced strategy in an inefficient field, you guarantee yourself profit without even having to think about what the field is doing. So if I was able, if I was able to get this rating to equal one for all these fighters, okay? So based on my model, what I believe efficient ownership is. So I had William Knight at 37%. And then I was playing my 124 lineups and I played him in 37% of them. And then if I look at Madsen and I made his efficient ownership, uh, you know, 40 and maybe his efficient ownership should be, you know, if I, if I do it here, let's see, 60, can I bring it up? No, that's even less. Okay. 10, can I, I can't even make it low enough for this. Yeah, if I put his, his efficient ownership is probably 6% or something, 4%. Uh, so I played him at like, at that level. If I found the efficient ownership of all the fighters, what I believe to be accurate, obviously, the accurate efficient ownership. And then I went into lineup HQ and said, build me all the lineups that come closest to six total out of the rating so I could get one out of all of them. Uh, Technically, all my lineups, as long as the field is inefficient, my entire lineup set is going to be plus EV. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, what I do is like what if you find the efficient ownership and you play them the, at the, the, the proper frequency, like that's automatically profiting, but it isn't the highest expected value set of lineups. Right. The highest expected value set of lineups would be ones that instead of caring, uh, instead of playing them at optimal frequencies, you pay, play them at the proportion in which they're off compared to the field. So when William Knight is supposed to be 37% owned, instead of play, you could just play them in 37, you could just take all the fighters, play them all at the proper frequencies. And as long as William Knight is gonna come in at 25% owned, you profit. But being that it's the largest discrepancy on the entire card, I played 56% of them. Right, like I'm playing more of the of the fighters that are way that I I have is more inefficient. Yeah. So what happens in that case is that I have lineups that have much higher EV, but also they have much higher variance because they're dramatically going against what the ownership in the contest is. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, someone like Nerdy Tenor is not worried about what the field is going to do, other than the fact that the field is inefficient. So like I take a look at the marbles example that we showed on, on, on Friday. Let me zoom in. Okay, so I added an extra thing just quickly before the show, just to make it the case. So here's, everything's efficient. We have the red, blue, green, and yellow marbles, just like from Friday. How many of them are in the bag? There's 10 in the bag. Four red, three blue, two green, one yellow. So that's 40%. You, you, we're playing a game where it's winner take all and you just take out one one marble. So if there were 100 players at a dollar entry fee and 40 chose red and 30 chose blue and 20 chose green and 10 chose yellow, essentially we that would be efficient ownership, yep. right? Yep. 40% ownership for a 40% shot, 30% ownership for a 30% shot. And then if you, Ross, if you played 10 lineups, 10, you know, if we consider all of these lineups, and you played four red, three blue, two green, and one yellow, you'd be spending $10 and getting back $10, obviously in the long run for EV. Now look what happens if 
We still keep the same frequencies of what the marbles in the bag, but we start decreasing. Instead of uh, uh, red being 40% owned, it's 39% owned. So it looks like this, right? Instead of blue being 30% owned, it's slightly under-owned, like that. Let's say we keep on going. Let's say we do it in the other direction, 41 and nine, just to leave it at 100. So let's say 20, let's say that's over-owned. So this, we're gonna go 19. So let's say red starts getting way, way over-owned. 45 to five, 35 to 15. Like look what ends up happening. Every time we keep on moving the ownership like of the field, the profit of your line, because you you have a perfect, you know for that four, three, two, one over here is efficient. There's no way for you to ever get below $10. Like you, the worst thing that happens is the field, your opponents end up playing and the ownership ends up being 40, 30, 20, 10. And then you get your money back because we're not assuming rake in any of this. But the, any way that you select how the field is inefficient, you profit from. Like every everyone. But now let's take a look at this. So this would be a balanced strategy of I don't care what the field's going to do other than the fact that the field is, is inefficient. I don't know where they're going to be inefficient, but no matter where they're inefficient, as long as I have the exact efficient ownership in my, in my 10 lineups, I profit no matter which way, no matter what anyone does. Now, if I knew the ownership now, 45, 35, like obviously red and blue are over-owned, green and yellow are under-owned. This is what I'm attempting to do. That's what I'm, yellow is the most, this would be the most efficient ownership. Don't, don't you lie to people. You would never cross off players like that. No, of course not. But that would, if I knew this, but this is, this, you, you didn't get to my second part. <laughs> this would be the, the optimal way to play. Exactly. It would yeah. be the highest variance way to play, but it would be the optimal way to play if I knew this exactly. But I don't know this. In DFS, you don't know it exactly. Right. So maybe, and also you have some type of bankroll management thing where, if, you know, if you're wrong, 10, 90% of the time you lose all of your lineups, right? You lose everything. So maybe I'm doing something more like, I'm playing something maybe more like my, my like that, right? Yeah. Right, that would, this would be more. That, that looks- Maybe cool. not even sick. Maybe I'm not even doing that. Maybe I'm doing the opposite. Maybe I'm doing something like that. Right, that looks like what you would build. The six, the six, three, one, or the six, two, one, one is what I would build. Right. But something like, so I have 10 lineups, uh, 10 choices and I'm going, I think yellow is going to be under-owned. I'm going to play more of them. I think green's going to be under-owned. I'm going to play more of them. I, blue is going to be slightly over-owned, right? I'm going to play less, less of this. So like, this is what I'm doing. Look at my profit over time versus this $14.60. So I'm making $4.60 in EV. But if I just played balanced, I'd make 79 cents. Look, look, look how dramatic the difference is in exploitative strategy versus a balanced strategy. But the diff the thing is, let's say I do this. So I'm I, I'm going to predict 
this as the ownership. Now, let's say I'm off. 42 to eight, 40, let's see, 30, let's see, I'm gonna go down to 31, 19. Okay, this is still, let's keep, let, 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 actually, let's say I'm off by the other direction. They're slightly under, you know, they come in the, diff, the different way. Let's see, 30, 41, I just wanna make it, I just want to make it add up to 100 so it's easier to see. Where, where am I going? Yeah, something like this. Like, let's say it comes in this way. Let's say it comes in that actually what I expected to be the highest over-owned actually comes in under-owned. Like, look, look at what ends up happening. If I'm off on ownership, obviously we could play this out. You know, I could, I could make this this and I could make that that, right? But if I'm off and I'm playing too much of what ends up being yellow, I thought would be five, ends up coming in at, you know, nine. Green, which I thought would be higher, comes in, you know, something like this, 40. Maybe I profit a little in this scenario. But if I'm, if I'm, the more off I am, the more likely I am to lose money on this slope, mm -hmm. right? Right, if I said it like this, like, look, I'm losing money. But look what happens if I just do four, three, two, one. I make a penny. Like there's no, there's no way, as long as the actual frequency is four, three, two, one over here, 40, 30, 20, as long as I play the efficient, the efficient ownership and my exposure of, of like, there's no way for me to be negative. Obviously in DFS, there is a way because you're gonna pay 15% rake. So you have to be somewhat not efficient in order to beat that. But this shows the difference of like if you played it at efficient ownership and everything and the and the market was efficient, there's no way to be exploited. So this is very similar in poker. There are situations in poker. Let's say you figure out blind versus blind and hold them that if you raise every single time, like if you if you raise X amount of time, there's no way for your opponent to exploit. That, you know, you don't even have to look at your cards. You go, if I raise 70% of the time here, no matter what my cards are, there's no way for me after, you know, obviously a million times for me to, to lose money. No matter what my opponent has and no matter what my opponent does. My, the big blind will fold X amount of times. And as long as I raise X amount of times, there's no action that he can make or she can make that could exploit me. Like that's, that's GTO. That's game theory optimal balanced strategy. Uh, you can make more money by, if, let's say I take a look at the big blind and it's a, it's a live poker game. I take a look at the big blind. I knew he just looked at his cards and now he's, he, he put, I noticed that uh, uh, whenever his, uh, his cards are sloppy, that means he doesn't like, like it's one of those, someone that's in the big blind that looked at his hand knowing that he's not going to play a hand. Like I could tell just from his body language, I've been playing long enough, you know, ordering something from the, 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 the attendant or something like now I'm sitting there going, yes, I should be raising 70% of the time in general. But like on this specific time, I, I see that I should be raising hundred percent. Like I'm going to exploit information that I know now. If I, if I see someone at a poker game and I uh, notice that, uh, they call too much. 
out of the big blind with like with uh and when they when they call it's it's of a certain range of hands and i look down and i see five two like yes if i raise 70 percent of the time i'm going to be profitable there's no way to exploit me. but in this specific instance against this specific opponent like i've identified an unprof one of those unprofitable times it would be make much more sense and i would make more money by taking away the unprofitable times if i could identify them so in this case of the the balance strategy so like what nerdy tenor is doing playing it at efficient ownership uh in the exposure he's building 150 lineups and that's what like he's building a like look picture this as 150 so he's building 100 lineups like this right so he's putting in 100 getting 100 back and as long as this is inefficient he's going to make money how much money he makes is just based on how inefficient the market is but in 100 lineups like if it turns out like if we look that uh let's go way let's move it a lot right like obviously green and yellow you know everything but red is profitable but we see that yellow is more profitable like just like in the example before what ends up happening is that his red lineups are not profitable so in a perfect world it's if he's building 100 lineups he wouldn't have any red lineups at all because it's negative EV, like he wouldn't have any not considering diversification or any type of bankroll management he knows that it should be 40 percent owned and he's playing 40 percent of them but ownership if he he's not considering what the field is he just knows that as long as he'll profit he's gonna he doesn't have to do anything else he's gonna profit eight dollars and 93 cents what i'm doing is well i want to take out those lines just like with the, the hold'em example like I know that red is going to be overowned. So why should I? I know it should be 40% and it's going to be 50%. So why am I playing more of them? Maybe I don't play it, none of them, but maybe I'm doing something more like I'm playing uh lineups more like maybe, maybe I'm playing a set like that. I'm making a little bit more money because I'm I'm removing these red marbles. From my from my stuff, because I've identified where the field will be inefficient. What Nerdy Tenor is doing is not caring about where. He just knows that if he's if 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 he theoretically makes the most the efficient frequencies, he's going to profit regardless of what it is. But I'm just going to profit more. But my margin of error is going to be much higher, because if I'm if if I'm wrong, I could end up building very negative EV loan. Nerdy tenor can't be wrong. All nerdy tenor can be wrong in is in 150 lineups. Maybe he actually his full lineup set of 150 is positive EV, but it may include 20 or 30 lineups that are actually negative EV. But it'll be made up in other places. He'll have lineups that make up for that. So, like his total set is plus EV. But my total set, if when when I'm the most accurate is going to be significantly higher EV than his set. So James, we approach when we talk about this team is overowned, this team is underowned, play more of this, play less of that, is all built around thinking about DFS as an exploitative player mm -hmm. 
and not necessarily thinking of it as as a balanced play. We don't we don't think in terms of uh, this team is going to be over owned. Like we say, this team's going to be over owned. We said the Blue Jays. The team's going to be over owned. Play less of them. Play you can play them in lineups as long as you get leverage somewhere else in the lineup. What we're doing is taking that balanced set and saying how could we make them more profitable. And while Nerdy Tenor may be building a lineup with Blue Jays at the a proper frequency with another team at the proper frequency, and then his lineup may end up because the Blue Jays, what ends up happening is the Blue Jays end up becoming even more owned than that. And now his lineup becomes negative EV because he's pairing too many chalky things together. But he'll also have lineups that make up for that. Like So like that lineup dies from an EV perspective, but... He simplifies his process where he doesn't even care what the field does. As long as it's once he once the field is efficient, then you stop playing DFS because then he then there's nothing there's no profit to be made out of it. But just to highlight, like to me, that this may be one of the more important concepts in all of DFS, especially when people look at these 150 matchers and people that use models and projections and everything that. You're not, you're probably as a lay person without extensive programming and accurate models going to be able to be as accurate with what the efficient ownership is. But you absolutely, without, I mean, look at, look at me. You absolutely can make money at DFS exploiting the field, even if you're not perfect. Like I said, in the example that I gave where I was, I was, I was playing, you know, four, one, two, three, four in this, in this instance, right? Like I could be off and make more money. Now, if I'm significantly off now, I'm now I'm now I'm losing money. But like once I identify, like, oh, the blue jays are gonna be overowned. Like if I just chose not to play any blue jays, I would have all my lineups be plus EV, as long as the blue jays end up being overowned. If the blue jays actually end up being underowned, well, then I'm screwed. And if the blue jays end up being overowned, but not as overowned as I think they are. I'm still small. I, I still have a profitable. So I don't have to necessarily know the exact efficient ownership because I'm not playing. That's not how I'm coming up with my lineups. I'm coming up directionally of who's based on what I'm seeing, who should be overowned, who should be underowned, playing more or less of them. Uh, have you ever, James, have you ever attempted to build like and something that you could come up with what? What would be the efficient ownership based on your projections uh, for specific contests? I, I've thought about it. I haven't actually dived into it. I, what I usually say is in my models, I have, a, I have the percentage time in my simulations that a team will score eight or more runs. I have a percentage time that they end up being the top scoring overall stack. So what I usually tell people is if you want something like that, go off how often they're the top overall stack because you can break your ownerships of teams up into something like that. I mean, yesterday, the, the Blue Jays, they had a 23.6% chance to be the top overall scoring stack. So if you want to consider that as like the optimal, like the correct EV ownership, then you can say that you want to be over on that if they're going to be under-owned or under that if they're going to be over. If, if, you're, if you're exploiting, but I mean, if, if you're, you're exploiting. playing a balanced strategy, you're, I know it's not perfect because the stacks could have different players in right. it and the different salary combinations. But in theory, 
if you have, if there's 20 baseball teams on a slate and based on your projection, based on whatever projection set or whatever time sure. process you're doing, you go, the Blue Jays should be 8.6% owned as a team. And did, uh, what Blue Jays are 8%, Houston 6% chance of being the top stack. Uh, this other team is 4%. Like if you played, if you took the, that percentages and you just said, I went into lineup HQ into the stacks and say, give me 8% of this, give me the exact amount like that. Like then if that obviously, cause players, it's not just the stack. Like, cause you can have a 1% on guy in a, in a blue Jay stack event. I mean, like this isn't perfect, but the concept yeah. is what you're saying is that if you just played the frequency of the teams, based on the frequency that they'll be the top stack. Like that, that would be a not, that would be a non-exploitable strategy, assuming that it holds. I mean, there's so many more variables than that, but conceptually, like if you just did that, you'd probably be better off than uh, if you're really bad at, proje- at projecting ownership. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Because I mean, that's what nerdy tenor does. Like he doesn't, he doesn't have to care about the ownership of the field. He just, cares about playing as much of teams as he thinks are going to be optimal. Right. I mean, that's all he's doing. You, you and me have it harder. You and me have it way harder because we have, No, to- I think we have it easier. Oh, oh no, no, no. I mean, I, I think we have it harder because all he has to do. And like, I am just simplifying the hell out of this, but all he has to do is make a model that's right. Most of the time <laughs> and then just follow that model. We have to have a model. I, well, me, I guess I should say me, I have it harder because I have to make a model that is right most of the time, as well as try to figure out what the field is doing so that I can say, well, my model says this, I'm going to be over or under based on what they are doing. He doesn't have to care about what they are doing. So I have that extra step. of having- no, he had, no, no, no. Hold on. He does have to care what they are doing. He just doesn't ca- have to care where they're doing it. Sure. Yeah. Because they are doing, meaning the field still has to be inefficient because if it's not, then there's no way to profit off of it. Right. But we know that the field is inefficient because predicting the future is inefficient. Right. So he, he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't, he doesn't have to care what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, but what makes up in, in ease or hardness or whatever you want to call it, difficulty is that I'm able to weed out lineups that are I know are negative. EV. I mean, just like, and play lineups that are higher EV. Right. He's because more likely to, he's more likely to be accurate on, if I just play these 150 lineups and just over time, I'm going to, I'm going to grind out. I'm just going to grind out the inefficiencies from the market, regardless of where they are. So I'm, what, what, I'm not saying one is better and one is not better. It's just, I think it's much, maybe it's just the background that I come from. I find it much easier uh, to be accurate with how to exploit the field than be accurate on the, on the projections than predicting the future. Like in predicting the future, I find that I personally find that to be the hard part. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Like that, that that's why I said, if, why, why am I building a projection model when I don't think I could beat the Cardi's? I don't think I could be, beat yours. Right. So like what, what good, what good am I going to be able to find from trying to more accurately predict the future of how players will perform? But just like in poker, I I was I never played game theory optimal in poker when when I played professionally. I played completely exploitive strategies. I mean, I tried to play against the weakest players, find the exact their betting patterns, and their frequencies were typically ridiculously off. 
I mean, ridiculously off. There were certain cases where they make they make a where a, a person would make a, a, a certain bet of a certain size on a certain board on a you know whatever. And I go, there's there's I'm looking at like the second best hand possible, and I fold it because like there's there's n- their their frequency is like they do not bet this without the ace high flush here. Like there's there's no possible way. If this is the one out of a million, like based on everything that I've seen, this person is not capable of making this bluff right here. It's in, it's impossible. Nor does he think he has a he has a weaker flush or something like that. Like, but that's exploitative. And in a balance strategy, you probably just oh, I'm getting uh, you know four to one on a call and call as long as like if I call eighty percent of the time, I profit. It's like right. no, I'm, I'm I studied the player that I'm against. So like I I I could weed out the times where I shouldn't be losing money and then making more money on the times that if I just played everything optimally, I'd squeeze out some money, but not, not to the extent of like, Oh, I'm going to raise here because I'm based on everything I've seen. There's no possible way he could have this range of hands based on everything that I've seen. Unless he's all of a sudden in the past two hours, the, you know, read like four books to say how profitable this would like, like I could, there are player archetypes at a poker table. Right. They're just like you could tell from from what hands he raises with what positions he like like you could tell you go this is the archetype of a player that can't make a check raise bluff on the on the on the turn with with a drawing hand like there's just like a a, a a a more skillful player would or a more or a more aggressive player but this particular type of player like would not make this would not, they, the hand range that he has has to beat my one pair hand mm-hmm. I fold and then there are other ones where like, oh, th- this this guy bluffs way too often with draws. And I'm like, okay, in this case, 30, 40% of the time, he has nothing here. And now I could adjust to what I'm doing. But playing balance means you're you're like you're not even looking at the play. Like the it's like you and the opponents, and like it doesn't even matter what the what the people are anymore. But one is not better than the other. Just I, I wanted to bring up because we talked. I'd say 95% of what we talk about is based around exploiting the field, but we really don't talk about what happens if we just try to play like completely balanced and try to figure out that. But to, to your perspective, you think it's easier to figure that out. Well, I think it's harder. Is, is that just purely down to the fact that, that uh, you're, you're much more skilled at, at making projection models and I'm not? And I'm just more skilled at just, I know how DFS players play and I could look and I could see when I, when, the, when the ownership projections on RG or something come out and they say, you know, oh, this, this picture is going to be 7% on. I go, nope, he's going to be 27% on. And I'm, I'm typically more right than, than the ownership projections are because it's just like, I've, I've literally, I've hand built lineups and like, there's, there's no way that, like in order to get these things, everyone's going to want to play this and every, and the only way to get that is by playing this picture. And maybe he's not going to be 7% owned, but I think he's going to be 27% owned and he ends up coming in at 22% owned. But still, I was may, way more accurate saying 27 than the ownership projections at seven. So like I'm building lineups based on that. and you're And you're more geared towards like, well, what are the range of outcomes of the actual players? And me, I don't really even, I, as long as I have some type of number that's accurate enough, like I, I coming the difference between 10.2 and 9.8 
in a projection for a median to me doesn't matter that much, but like oh, a 10% difference in uh, median projection for a player to me doesn't matter as much as a 10% difference in ownership projection. No, and I totally, I totally agree with that. I 100% agree with that. The reason why I said it was more difficult is because he, like when you are paying attention to both, there's more variables to pay attention to. That's why I say that it's more difficult. It's more difficult. I, I shouldn't have said, because like, if you think about it, me, you and Nerdy Tenor kind of represent the three different sides of this, right? Like if, if I am in the middle of trying to do both and Nerdy Tenor is over here on the left trying to do projections and you're over here on the right trying to exploit the field, then I'm in the middle and caring about both. And it just makes my yeah, life- That's the hard, right? That, that, that's you're right, hard. that's probably the hardest. That's the hard part. Which, which is why I make the big bucks, right? You know, like, <laughs> right? I, I'm the one making $90,000 in MMA every weekend. Um, no, but it's, I, I, I think that is difficult. And I do think that um, back to like humble beginnings a couple of years ago, I cared a lot more about uh, figuring out what the field wanted to do rather than wanting to put together a good projection model. I didn't even have an MLB projection model until last year. And that was just built because I wanted to see if I could do it. And it turned out to be really good. So I, I do care. I think that it, there is a lot more uh, EV to be found in figuring out what the field is doing rather than figuring out how to put together the best possible projection model. Um, but that's true. But Nerdy Tenor would say the same. I mean, it literally says the same thing. It's like, it's, it's, it's more profitable to exploit the field, but it's impossible to be exploited if you play the proper right. frequency. Exactly. Right? Like, like, yeah. there's, like you guarantee, like you, the way that he plays, he could set it and forget it. And it doesn't matter. Like, well, this team is higher on than that. Who cares? I'm playing it at the optimal frequency. Yeah. So as long as the field's off, I don't know where it's going to be off, but I'm just sucking out EV from wherever it happens to be because I'm, because I'm playing it optimally. Yeah. Right. The, to me, the hard part is figuring that exact, like, you have to be much more exact on that to me because I have much more room for error because if if I'm playing high variance lineups that are significantly higher EV, if I'm slightly off, like in this example, right here, the one, two, three, four example, like if I'm off, even if I'm just off a little, like I'm still profiting more than like, I thought it would be this ownership. So I thought I was going to get $4.44 profit. It turns out the ownership actually came in more more like more like this, more like like let's put 18 there, like 28, you know, something something more like more like that, right? So instead of profiting $4.44 over the long run, I'm now profiting $1.94, right? By using the explo this exploitative strategy, but it being off Right, I'm not perfect with the I, I directionally accurate, but not perfect. Right now, let's say I played balanced, I make 21 cents. Right, 21 cents versus a dollar 94. So now, the more I'm off, like how far do I have to get off till I get till I get down to 21 cents? Right, I have to be significantly off. Right, mm -hmm. right. If th th this is 42. Right, yellow is eleven. Let's let yellow is ten. Right, right. Here, here you go. Here's something like this, where it's like, yeah, I was. I thought red would be way overowned, 
I thought green would be, and green and yellow would be much more under-owned. So I played more yellow lineups, even though it came in at 10%. But look, I, I still played less of the highest owned thing. That was a minus 4.76 ROI. So I still made, I still made 29. Like I didn't change my strategy, just that I was significantly off on the ownership. But if I were to play this at proper optimal strategy, that's three cents. So I'm still making more money, even though I'm off. I'm making 29 cents instead. Right. Right. So like, but the more off I am, I could go into the negative. The balance strategy could never go into the negative. So as long as the, the more the field's off, the more money you make, but you make so much more money exploiting the field. That's the reason why I do it. Right. Right. And, it, and that's the reason why I do it. And also because I, I, I can't make accurate player projections well enough versus especially in once you move up in stakes, once you're playing the 150 max contest with other 150 ers that have models, have their own stuff. Look at, look at how nerdy tenor is playing. Do you think I could be, I can make a 150 set in the same fashion that I could make efficient ownership? I don't think so based on his process. So why, why am I attempting to? Right. Right. Why am I just making worse lineups just uh, because other people are doing so? No, I'm just going to, I'm going to exploit what the field is. It's just that now I need to figure out where it is and get those lineups while, while people like that, people like him, other, other sharp players. That is like, if you like whistles go woo, essentially is what, but he's doing also. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's been in interviews saying that he barely cares about ownership at all because that's what he's doing. He's so what's the, what's the optimal frequency of the lineups that I should be playing and play those and play, and then the field's going to be off and then I profit type of thing. I just wanted to, I just wanted to highlight this. I thought it was, a, you know, obviously I, I, I talked to nerdy tenor last week, Yeah, but we talked about it on the show. And I, I just, since I had this marbles example, I thought this was a good place to just legitimately show what that the effect of that is. Yeah, and that, you and could that, have heard it, and you could have heard it, and just go, "I don't get what you mean by optimal frequencies, and what is it? like." No, I. This is exactly like what is the proper ownership? I'm going to play it as many. You know, I play 150 lineups with the proper frequency, and then let the field be inefficient and give me some money. Yep, over the long run. Over the long run. Okay, just to go through some of the YouTube chat uh, questions. Let's see. Quid Williams, will you could create a similar table for NFL Showdown? Is the methodology you use in MMA similar to how you approach NFL Showdown? Not real, not as much because there's uh, there's actual correlation involved in NFL Showdown. NFL, in anything that you do, you should be approaching it from a lineup level, not a player level. MMA is just the e MMA and probably PGA are the easiest to do from a player level because like there's not, there's really no correlation. So right. it's easier to use this type of sheet to go like, what, what am I weighing uh, individual players on? This guy is over owned. This guy is under, well, he's not over owned. Like you're going to play a 2% owned wide receiver, fifth wide receiver on a team in showdown with the wide receiver one and not play the quarterback. I mean, like, but the quarterback is over owned. Yeah. But you'll need him in that lineup. Right. So like 
to go through and say, like, what would end up happening if I did this type of sheet in Showdown is I would end up playing uh, uh, 150 lineups, but only have 10 lineups that have any quarterback in them because the quarterbacks are always over-owned. But they're the linchpin of correlation of almost every player on the, on, on the slate. So, like, like, how do you expect, oh, I'm going to play, there, there's three wide receivers from the same team that are all significantly under-owned. So I'm going to play one in the captain and two in the flex and fade the quarterback. Like, how how does that work out where that, that wide receiver is the highest scoring player on the slate? The other two wide receivers have double-digit scores and, and the starting quarterback is, is, sitting, is not in the, is not, especially when you probably have the salary to get him anyway. You know how that happens? He gets injured on the first play and the backup comes in. But like, but like so you can't do this. Backup. But that, that's right. You throw in the backup too, right? You, I mean, it, that, that's what I'm saying. I don't think, I don't think you can make, you can think in terms of terms like that, but that's what makes all the other sports hard because you have to weigh in the correlation of, of the teams in general. So like in showdown, maybe, maybe in showdown golf, golf, showdown, there's no showdown MMA, obviously. Uh, let's see. Any other, any other questions? Tim Lincecum, 14. It comes down to the accuracy of the ownership projections. Would you guys say the more projected ownership information you have, three, four sources or more, the less variance you place on those projected ownerships? James, do you, do you aggregate from any other sources? Yeah, I aggregate from, uh, depending on the sport, up to five different sources. Okay. So do you, do you, do you project ownership yourself? Yeah, uh, I project. So, so what, what I'm asking is, do you project it yourself and then aggregate like for others with yours or you don't even project ownership yourself, you just aggregate? No, so I have ownership projections for a couple different sports that I've built in-house models, but for the big sports, MLB, NBA, and NH and uh, the, the three big sports, um, NFL, uh, I use the aggregate and then I build off of the aggregate and then I build another extra weight onto the aggregate based on stuff that I think is important. Okay. GR so I'm taking, I'm taking a whole bunch of different sources and then I'm saying, okay, that's pretty good, but I think I can make it a little bit better. And then okay. I go a little next step. Right. Okay. So you, basically you're weighting your own ownership more than the other ones. Yes. Yeah. Like when we say the word aggregate, it doesn't mean you have to aggregate equally. No. Right. Like, no. like in my, in my, in my uh, MMA sheet, like I do it equally. Like, so this is the average of these three. But if you said that I think RG ownership is more accurate than this other place, I'm going to weigh it at 40% versus 33%, right? You, so that's exactly like your, your ownership projections are weighted the most, but you're grabbing a couple other sources to kind of smooth it out. Cause maybe you're the, what ends up happening is that you, you have a guy, you know, a pitcher that's uh, you, you project to be 24% owned and like four of the sources have them at eight to 10. Right. And you're like, like that's wrong. Right. Then it's <laughs> most likely you're not going to change yours, but the, uh, the four others are going to push, it down so now it's now it comes out as average around 13 percent well and also i go into uh to lineup hq and i run 300 lineups and i use that as a weight as well so okay. i i run all 300 lineups and i figure out where players are dropping in based on um the bat x and i use that as a weight as well so right now that, that i call i call that uh, uh optimizer ownership yes yep because like if it, like if ownership projections have this guy at like 20% owned. And then I see that he's coming in on like 90% of lineups out of 300. I'm like, 
he's not going to be 20% on man. I, you can bump that up at least like 10, 15%. Right. A lot. And it's a lot of times due to people using optimizers incorrectly. Yeah. It's like, okay, they didn't limit anything. So this, you're going to get 80% of a guy as a one-off as a $2,200 hitter. Yeah. And like, why? And if he doesn't do well, you go, well, what's wrong? Like, just because he's the best point per dollar play doesn't mean you have to play him. Right. Still Optimizers don't know anything, man. They're just, they're just a calculator. That's all. Uh, GR, so I 12, what is the archetype of nerdy tenor versus cheese is good? So Dave Potts and their approach in your opinion. I would say leans more on my side. Dave, Dave doesn't make his own projections or anything. He uses, but he's doing the same, the same thing of here, here are the top, if you read his musings, if you're a premium member, you can click on the link in the description, get $10 off your first month. He's, he's basically very similar to me of, I could identify the top stacks. I could, obviously, you could go by team total for crying out loud, right? Like of who's most likely to score the most points or something like that. And then say, well, people are going to be more attracted to this team versus that team. So I'm going to play more of this team versus that team. So you, you, hear, you hear cheese a lot of times on, on crunch time for premium members. Talk about how uh, it seems like more people are going to be playing the Blue Jays and the Astros and uh, the Phillies and the Dodgers are going overlooked. And if you take a look at his 150 set of lineups, he's going to have a lot more of the Dodgers and the Phillies. But it doesn't mean he's not going to have the Blue Jays also. He's, not, he's still going to have, he says specifically, it's like, like if I'm playing 150 lineups, he's going to have a stack of like every team on the slate. Like, it doesn't matter. There's 26 teams on the slate. He's most likely going to have one lineup that's a five-man stack or something, four-man stack of that team. So there's, there's no team that everyone has a chance. And he wants to build a more diversified kind of set of lineups. So Cheese tends to be a little bit more diversified. But he's still coming at it from the perspective of what teams are under-owned. What teams that have ceilings are under-owned. He... he doesn't focus as much on the cheaper teams. Like he's he's much more likely to, oh, the Dodgers are under owned because everyone's playing the Blue Jays. I'm playing a bunch of the Dodgers. Me, I'm like, me, he I come across as more exploitative in the way of uh Carlos Hernandez is going to be 37% owned as a $5,900 pitcher. Uh, I'm going to play some Cub stacks because I'm going to get extra value when Carlos Hernandez gets killed. Because so many lineups have like that, cheese doesn't necessarily think in those those type of situations. He just he's thinking exploitative, but just in under owned, over owned, linearly. And I think of the whole like, well, if I stack against this guy, I could then I could play the Blue Jays in this lineup, and then play the one off that no one else is playing. You know, like like stuff like that. You you think about things in terms of direct leverage. He does more indirect. That that would be correct. Okie doke. So uh, theoryofdfs.com. If you, if you like this type of discussion, that, that's, I mean, that's 15 hours. Theoryofdfs.com. If you want to learn more about the game theory of DFS, uh, James's stuff is over at paydirtdfs.com. Paydirt underscore DFS. You have a whole long, like two hour video about your NFL projections. Not about my NFL projections. Uh, I did a video. I had a subscriber ask how they would build like a really basic football projection model. And uh, I answered it in the discord. And then I was like, I, I can probably just like do this on stream. So I went ahead and I did a stream the other day 
uh, going over building a super basic NFL projection model. It's not anything that's like super complicated, but it is just straight from scratch. Like I started with a basic, just blank Google Live document and went for two hours and built out a really basic NFL projection model. So that was a lot of fun. And th there's like some cool little tidbits in there about like Vegas and, and bookmakers and what they actually want to achieve. And there's a lot of formula stuff. And yeah, just go, go watch that video. It was a lot of fun. Right. It's on the YouTube channel. You can follow James Paydirt underscore DFS. You can follow me at BlenderHD. Hit the thumbs up button on your way out the door. Give me those thummy thumbs, thumbs up, thumbs down. Maybe some, maybe there may be some people like, oh, too much math in this conversation. Thumbs down. That's fine. I think the YouTube algorithm doesn't care if it's an up or a down. Hit the subscribe button. If you're new here, uh, we got Grinders Live coming up later today for the six-game MLB slate. Uh, so hit the notification bell to know when we go live. And, uh, and I will see you guys tomorrow. We'll, we'll review the slate. We'll talk more about DFS strategy, as we always do, Monday through Friday at 11 o'clock Eastern for the DFS pregame show on rotogrinders.com.